1: It's been a jolly good week for our latest guest on Soundtracking whose new film, 1917, has just landed him a couple of gongs for Best Film and Director at the Golden Globes along with a handful of nominations for BAFTA Awards. I am, of course, talking about the wonderful Sam Mendes, who joined me for a chat at London's Imperial War Museum towards the end of last year. Now, in case you don't know, 1917 tells the story of two soldiers in World War I charged with delivering a critical message to fellow troops and is based on a first-hand account told to Sam by his grandfather. Remarkably, the action is shot to appear like one continuous two-hour take The fact that he pulls off in such convincing fashion is thanks in no small part to the efforts of legendary cinematographer Roger Deakins. 1917 has the most extraordinary score written by Thomas Newman, who also worked with Sam on American Beauty and his Bond films. And it's with Thomas's title cue from the movie that we begin. So is, welcome back to Soundtracking. Well I say welcome back. You've been on another show that I did, but not quite soundtracking. So welcome to Soundtracking.
2: <coughs> I'm so sorry, I'm coughing away. It's, it's and you can hear the echo in here because yeah. we're in the dome of the Imperial War Museum, which is a little bit like the war room in Doctor Strangelove.
1: I think this is the most grand room we've ever recorded, one yeah. of these in. It's extraordinary, but it sounds wonderful as well. If only the walls could talk. <laughs> As to what went on here.
0: Yeah, and
2: it's uh, it's quite a movie to be here, actually.
1: Did you spend a lot of time here in research at all? Because this is one of the places George Mackay, one of your cast, was saying that he spent time in terms of...
0: Yeah,
2: you know, we were, um, we were here a couple of days. Um, it has an incredible resource, incredible uh, um, archive. Yeah. And uh, because most of the war really what i was looking for was not historical research in the conventional sense mm. um obviously there's photographs you know the wars are very very well documented what i wanted was <clears throat> the first person accounts of the war of which they've collected an enormous number here because of course this was a war that you know was not recorded very much at the time and mm. there was no newsreel um and things were being reported in a not entirely accurate way during the war because the government didn't want the you know, the men, the potential soldiers, to not enlist. It's only after the war that um, that the truth began mm. to emerge. So, yeah, I was looking for first-person accounts, diary entries. Um, they have a lot of straight-to-camera video of, of men not talking about their experiences until their 60s or 70s, which are amazing and really w- moving. So th- this is a pretty amazing resource, this place.
1: And did you find something here connected to music? Was that where there was a story you discovered about a?
2: We did, yes. That was a nice segue. Yeah, uh, we. It was here that I, I encountered a story, a first-person account of written by a, a soldier, a, a private or a corporal in the army, who stumbled on a concert in the woods. It's very simple. It's written in very plain language, and uh, he stumbles on a battalion sitting down and listening to one soldier playing the piano. It's a piano that's been looted from a French farmhouse. And he talks about it playing a nocturne by Debussy, the man playing this. And, and he said um, he realized in that moment that he hadn't heard music for two years. And he describes it as the most beautiful thing he'd ever heard. And it just spellbound him. And I thought, what an amazing scene, potentially. So I had that in the back of my mind. And and in this story, there seemed to be a natural moment for something like that. And then that became not a Debussy nocturne, because I felt it wasn't quite credible that there would be a piano happens to be sitting in the woods. Um, So that became a soldier singing a song on his own. But it took me a while to work out what the song was, and Mm -hmm. I couldn't quite work it out. And then I was uh, driving back. Uh, with my wife Ali, and listening to Radio 3 in the car. and somebody played an old folk song sung by Andrea Shaw or his version of a song which is you know f- will be familiar in various other versions. It's been recorded by Johnny Cash. and in fact, there's a version of it on YouTube sung by Ed Sheeran called um, "I am a Poor Wayfaring Stranger." And the arrangement was unbelievably beautiful.
3: to this and no, I see.
2: Obviously, Andrea Scholl has the most incredible voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I used an Andrea Scholl piece, uh, a piece of Vivaldi that he sings Inspector. So I'm a big fan of his, the yeah. sort of extraordinary purity and intensity of his voice. And I found it and, um, I, I, you know, we tried singing it as Andrea Scholl does as a countertenor, but it sounded a little, it didn't sound quite right without the arrangement. So that just became a single voice, tenor voice singing alone in the woods. And um, it's one of the moments in the film that I think is when the film gets, you know, a bit more, lyrical uh that's one of the quieter moments in the film Um, and i was very conscious that i didn't want to lock the audience into a kind of monotonous pace you know and just endless sort of racing forwards and for reasons that i won't go into give the movie away but um at this point in the story he he's um he's just been i mean so close to death on so many so many occasions he feels almost as if he's died and these people are ghosts
1: yeah he's hallucinating almost yeah right? totally and the performance is like really it's really special because it's it's really tender and it's not show-offy and it's just it's just pitched perfectly
2: well it's a very good young actor called joss Slovic, who um i had to when i worked with him on the song which i did very you know briefly i had to make sure that he took out all contemporary vocal stylings mm-hmm. and he said I'm, I'm not doing any am I and and oh, wow. you know you're so unaware I think of, of the way that people you know to try and sing something very plainly with almost no vibrato as well don't sound like a trained singer is what I was trying to say <laughs> yeah. but, but sing in tune you know you, you become aware of how rarely you hear a voice used that way Yeah. you know because the the goal always is to sound produced you know yeah um, perfect and kind of yeah perfect or, or you know have personality and yeah. somehow the song doesn't speak through you but the thing about folk music is it's you know it's handed down from generation to generation and, and it's the song that you're listening to the song that plays the singer in a way and, and it's the words
1: um, isn't it Cause it's storytelling yeah. isn't it that's the thing it's kind of you know that's what folk music is it's about yeah. telling stories lyrically yeah you know and melodically and yeah
2: and and also you know this this song is really about life and death and mm. and uh, it's a beautiful piece of music
3: I'm going to see my father I'm going
1: Was it easy to, you know, in terms of you got that history and you got with num- a number of collaborators on this film, be that Roger Deakins and stuff, but with music in your score mm. and and working out how you wanted the film to sound on a score level, was that easy to, to work out? Did you know what you wanted, or was there a lot of conversation?
2: No, this? it was one of the most difficult movies to score I've ever experienced. Yeah. It's because music operates in a different way in this movie than any i'd experienced before because it's a one continuous take and it's two hours long just one shot effectively it's a very very present tense film and so the scoring a lot of the time you're very aware of music that it comments on the on the acting it gives you distance or it gives a kind of energy um, that is not necessarily emerging out of the picture so we talked a lot tom newman and i about a very kind of austere ambient underscore a lot of the time keeps you kind of holding your breath but doesn't comment on what's going on doesn't say it's good or bad so there are some pretty intense emotional scenes that are not scored at all or barely scored Then the music emerges in a much more expressionistic and grand way, at times when you don't necessarily expect it. So it, as a overall dynamic, you know, in other words, <clears throat> if you were to listen to the, the score as a whole, of all the scores I've worked on with him, it, it, it goes the quietest and the loudest. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and there's not much in between. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's really an amazing piece of composition. And it was hard to try and find the right tone.
1: But it's also the thing because it's it's a period film so you know it's it's set in a certain time but trying to avoid that cliche of it you know as well yeah. in terms of yeah. you know it's kind of fighting against almost what that one song has to be yes the purity of that time of the yes. voice the the score very much feels like it's got a real timeless quality to it mm. and it's, 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 just, it's very clever and it works, I think, brilliantly.
2: Well, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's an amazing score and I think you're right. You know, it's a contemporary film. It's not a historical period piece. You yeah. know, I didn't want something that felt that, like it was written in 1917. I felt, I mean, I wanted something that's written now. Yeah. And, um, you know, we use all the contemporary bells and whistles of a big cinema experience, you know, from camera to sound to Music. Yet you also have to, you not go too far in that direction. You don't want it to sound too too groovy, too funky, and too. <laughs> um, and also, you know, very aware, having worked on two Bond movies with Tom, too Bondian as well. And the Bondian swagger, that sense that we know, you know, when he kicks into gear, you know, he's the man. Yeah, that that simply couldn't exist in this <laughs> yeah. movie. It's the opposite. You know, isn't these it? are these are these are accidental heroes. Yeah. If, if they're even heroes, I mean, they they're, they're operating on instinct. And they must never seem to be, you know, action men um, or, or entirely in control of what they're doing. Even at the point where they do the most extraordinary things, their hands are shaking, you know, they're adrenalized, their hearts are pounding, and they're they're kind of an inch away from death. So <clears throat> trying to balance the demands of a, you know, a big cinema movie that you want people perched on the edge of their seat with, you know, some level of realism about who these people are and not falling into to either historical period cliches or action movie cliches that that was that was something we were aware of
1: was just trying to find my notes because yeah a minute
2: ago it said Kevin Smith and I thought don't don't ask me don't ask me Kevin Smith's (laughs) questions
1: no but the first thing that I wrote like as this film started was score is stunning it's not time specific
2: wow oh that's interesting yeah
1: which is the first thing that I wrote from the first piece of music that I heard.
2: yeah
0: interesting
1: then the one thing that i love as well is that wonderful mix that you have of like the sound design and the score because there's there's things like the sound of the crows Mm. you know and all that kind of stuff that it's just seamless and sometimes the music can be um it's it's so subtle that you don't even realize that it's there but then a sound will come in and it'll go oh well there was you know and and that's so clever i think as well
2: well i think we use two or three key moments It's when the music stops that you really... You know that that's how you express silence. Sometimes it's, yeah. it's, you know you need to build up the noise before immediately before you feel. Yeah. Well, some, at one point he says it's very it's bloody quiet, isn't it? And <laughs> yeah. and there is music playing, um, but, it, but the music expresses the silence. You know, yeah. Um, Not and an yeah, think you do. Say again.
1: Music in silence.
2: It's weird and counterintuitive, <laughs> but the movie this movie is in many ways that you 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 feel silence because you hear a crow in the distance yeah. or a dog barking in the yeah. distance. Pure silence is very difficult to express in movies because you're constantly, you know, you're not almost ever in pure silence. And certainly in movie theaters, you know, there's rustling and people eating popcorn and, you know, (laughs) someone coming through the door from the toilet and air conditioning and all these other things. So you're fighting against, you know, peripheral sound, which I think is something that's not talked about very much, but I talk about a lot in the theater, you know, that you're trying to create silence even now sitting in this room i can hear you know i can hear the buzzing of a generator yeah. and you know all these other little More things that go on plastic, so you have to you have to create a feeling of space around a noise you know i have a favorite bird call in the movie it's the call of the loon <laughs> <do> you know <laughs> which is which is one of these amazing lake birds and the call is very very haunting and strange And you feel suddenly the space. You can hear it echoing across space. So you're expressing the distance beyond where we see. Because it's a very, very eye-level movie. You know, you, you, you're, you're with the characters very intimately a lot of the time in places where they can't see what's beyond. Yeah. They're down in a trench or they're in a dugout and they're in a hole and they can't see, you know, and they don't, neither do they want to be because they feel exposed. So sometimes you're down in the trench with them and you hear this sound beyond and you realize the vastness of the land just beyond their vision yeah. and and that's that's a, a way of using sound to express space <clears throat> in a way that's you know hopefully unconscious for an audience you feel it you don't think about it yeah you're not drawing attention to it but trying to express silence and is is one of the most difficult things in in film
1: i've got a couple of cues that i wanted to speak about particularly one of the is the the piano that kind of comes in is they're kind of almost kind of traversing in the crater yeah that's amazing yeah that's
2: yes, I mean, Tom was very, you know, he said, am I allowed to write music here? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it was like, because, you know, it's so much of it at that point has been ambient, you know, yeah. huge, just big bottom end tones and strange. It's almost like a sort of waves of nausea, you know. And I was very conscious both in the way that we shot No Man's Land and the way that we scored No Man's Land that there's always a danger in movies that you're using, you know, one of the greatest catastrophes in world history the sort of piggyback on it you know uh, to tell an action story or yeah. or, or or an entertainment and um, there's a large part of the movie which I wanted to sort of bear witness to this thing mm. I wanted to bear witness to No Man's Land and I wanted the music to do the same thing I didn't want to do you know no, look at this isn't this terrible or isn't this awful it just it sits there like a kind of like a sickness, you know, um, and and it comes in these big sort of heaving waves of mm. sound, and suddenly there's this there's this strange haunting figure that Tom picks out on the piano, and and a, a, in a way it's the first moment in the movie if you look at it carefully that the camera really detaches from the from the central characters, it, the camera floats across this awful f- fetid uh, kind of lake of bodies and and. Um, crows and and the characters go further and further away along the far bank, and then gradually they double back and start coming back towards you again and re, and, and we rejoin them and at that point the the piano theme develops into something larger and again it's it's connected to the way that um, the, the, you know the way the camera is relating to the the characters and yeah. suddenly having heard every I mean they're doing every footstep, every breath they're, they're distant characters almost uh, uh, far away in the mist and so music in a way takes some of the pressure off us expecting to see them all the time it says actually there are going to be other ways to tell this story yeah. not just following behind them or, or, or seeing yeah. them up close and so it was an important cue in a way
1: Different kind of locations, so to speak, that he, that they sort of, you know, go through to to try and get to where they're going. I'm so conscious of giving away things. Yeah, I'm I know. You, Gwen, it's difficult
2: to talk about yeah, without but, giving but, stuff away.
1: But there's a there's a there's a sort of <laughs> derelict town with yes. you know that's that's on. It's an inferno basically, and that's. I mean. I could watch hours of that kind of just, it's just so beautifully shot, but, but kind of getting the sound right for that, where it's a very different landscape and environment mm. that we've been in and that it's, it's an angry landscape. There's lots going on. There's mm. even the color of it and all that kind of thing. And thinking about the music or the score slightly differently for that as well.
2: Yes. I thought it was very, um, that's the first time the camera detaches entirely from the characters And you don't see them at all. Uh, It goes out of a window and floats down into the town. And then eventually we meet up with the character again, who's uh, by that time walking into the town. But the music is also saying, on some level, you know, at this point he's been badly injured and we've lost track of time. It's saying he's doing it, he's keeping going, he's going to make it. You know, so there's this sort of extraordinary feeling of. I don't know, it's really stirring. I find that an incredible, for me, that's the best piece of music Tom's ever written for one of my movies. You know, he calls it The Night Window, and I think it's an amazing piece. Mm. But one of the interesting things that's also going on is there is a slightly sort of magical feeling to it, almost as if he's about to step through the looking glass, you know, Mm -hmm. into another world. And it sets up that new visual language, that new landscape. In which is the flares going over and the distortion of the light and the shadows and the sense in which the ground is moving underneath him. And then this sort of weird descent, as you say, into hell, really, which mm. is uh, the, sto- the point at which the, the, the story moves away from something more naturalistic and towards something more mythic. You know, it really is like going into the underworld. You know, he's... Um, and you wanted this apocalyptic hallucination uh, to be accompanied by music that was... It's equal.
1: Yeah. use temp score?
2: We, we did, yeah. I mean, I, I we temped it very, very heavily while we were shooting it because Lee Smith, the editor, was stitching it all together and trying to give me I wanted as much of a sense of what the final movie might feel like before I shot the next day. So I was able to Kind of watch the movie up to the point I was shooting every day or every night. Um, And a lot of that was just trying music out. Sometimes it was very, very clear when it it worked. And it was very difficult to get pieces that worked. And when I suggested the piece of temp score for that moment, Lee laughed at me. He said, that's not going to work. And then it did work. M- m- most of the time, he was right and I was wrong. <laughs> but on that occasion, I can say that it worked. And it was, but it was quite an extreme choice because I think he thought, oh, this is a moment where we're going to be doing conventional tension, yeah. thriller scoring. And it's not that at all. Mm-hmm. It's something quite quite different and in a way more ambitious than that
1: yeah it's so funny hearing people talk about kind of the love hate relationship with temp score both yeah um, of, of that can you just make do something that sounds a bit like this if that's <laughs> all right well one thing i wanted to ask is well, i was listening back to our last conversation and we talked quite in depth about bond and in particular the that incredible long opening sequence um, for that Bond film, for Inspector, it, for Spectre, yeah, 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 and um, and uh, I watched it back and just talking about how brilliantly matched picture and music and the clever use of that, those even there's a there's a bit where it's just a it's like guitar guitar chords that are the chords of the theme tune, yeah. it's so it's, I mean like you said the last time it's like one of the most iconic probably the most yeah. iconic you know theme tune ever but just the way of using that and I wanted to ask because working with Roger on that kind of you know and I know that you'd after Bond you started to think about this film yes and whether that the experience of, of that kind of idea of what you created with that hugely long opening sequence had yes. given you a bit of a go actually
2: it did give me of course Roger didn't shoot that one he shot the oh, previous oh, the one previous, Roger shot Skyfall right, yeah. but the long tracking shot was Inspector which was shot by van Hoytema um, the best really, name
1: to cinematographer ever that,
2: yeah it's I think his name's Colin or something really.
3: <laughs> just, just made it up. Um anyway, Jeff. shot by Colin. Um
2: Colin Smith, aka Hoyt. Anyway, he he um w- w- yes, I mean it was that was tremendously enjoyable and uh, really thrilling and it felt so exciting when we were trying to <clears throat> coordinate thousands of costumed Mexican extras and uh, and and Daniel and that that kind of dropping an audience down into the middle of this you know really sweaty atmosphere and exciting but yeah that was a that was a very deliberate that that is a i think a a piece of scoring that i'm proud of because we have these uh, drummers tambuco these mexican drummers who are brilliant playing live and then tom newman weaved the bond theme into the live drumming um and then the theme kind of took over and as the drums receded so even though the first five minutes doesn't have any conventional scoring it just has source music it feels like you've got music going the whole time, um, so so yeah. And then and I was very um, uh, I was very pleased about the opening sequence of Spectre, partly because we didn't use scoring all the way through it. I got very frustrated with Skyfall where I realised that there was something about the opening sequence, impressive though it was, that felt sort of a bit metronomic. Like like it, and we had to score it from beginning to end, yeah, which is a long time for action scoring. So I was very conscious of, of waiting and waiting and waiting until the score began Inspector, which was was in the fight in the helicopter when the helicopter lost control. Then the music comes in. And because you've been sort of deprived of it up to that point, it feels like it has a sort of, kicks like a horse at that point. You're like, <laughs> oh, when it comes in, it, it feels great. i did learn a fair amount i mean i learned a lot from the whole bond experience but one of the things was you know um h- how good music can be when you've had a break from it you know what i mean when you you, you yeah. don't hear it for long periods and uh, you trust silence um there's a great temptation to overscore and uh, particularly in in a big movie like a Bond movie and and um it taught me you know to have the comf- the confidence to to wait a little longer
1: How much do you think your theatre experience kind of informs you as a filmmaker?
2: Oh gosh, I don't really know because I don't know any other way, you know. But in terms of this movie, it informed me a whole whole lot, really, a great amount. Because I was, first of all, I'm not unfamiliar with rehearsing eight weeks, and then saying to a bunch of actors, right, you know, off you go, I'll see you in two hours. You know, there's an audience out there waiting to watch you. And watching an evening, and then trying to judge the rhythm and the shape and the the pace of the whole, rather than breaking it up into its component parts. And, you know, movies are tiny little bits, and you impose the pace and the rhythm in in editing. So... That muscle that I normally use for theater to try and judge the shape of something, I was using every day for this movie because I had to get a perfect take before I could move on. And I also had to judge, is it too long? Is it boring? Is it repetitive? That pause he takes there, will I be frustrated by that in in five months' time when I'm in a cutting room? Um, Will the scene be scored? You know, how am I going to – how's it going to slot into the whole – dare I take the time that this scene takes, you know, um, and it needed a certain amount of, you know, what David Fincher calls intestinal fortitude to just sort of, you know, get through each day,
0: yeah.
2: um, without second guessing oneself, without thinking, oh my God, that scene I shot where he comes out of the farmhouse and walks to the barn, he seems to take forever and nothing's being said and I can't cut it out. Am I mad? You know, no. um, but it, it, you know, I felt it was working, and and you know, in the end, I think that instinct comes from feeling what an audience can and can't mm-hmm. take yeah. in a live experience.
1: Absolutely, it's kind of it's lovely <laughs> to have things have the pace to it. I think is is, is wonderful because you're it feels real,
2: if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, know. I mean, you know. The, 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 Life's not always interesting. But, you know, <laughs> the weird thing is, it, it, it yes, it's amazing. If you feel a sense of potential threat, how long you're on the edge of your seat and how closely you watch the image, because you just don't know where that's going to come from. Yeah. And I think, you know, you do have to remind the audience pretty consistently throughout, okay, this is where we are, this is where we've got to get to, this is the dangers. Yeah. And that does happen pretty consistently throughout, you know, that they remind each other. This is what we've got to do. We must make sure this doesn't happen. Um, and really, in doing, in reminding each other, they're reminding us as well as we watch. You know, this is this is what could happen to them. But I'm very proud that in the first half of this movie, what effectively are the action sequences are basically a rat, which I won't explain what happens with the rat, but you know, and a plane, and I won't explain what happens with the plane. But both of them lead to. Pretty immense, yeah. you know, and life-changing <laughs> yeah. incidents, uh, and they're not at all where you expect the dangers to come from. And in that respect, it, it, it sort of it's constantly, I hope, defying what your expectations are of a war movie. And you know, there's no combat in it. There's very little bloodshed. Yeah. Um, but uh, in terms of feeling like you're there, I hope it it succeeds.
1: It was interesting, hearing Rogers, say that working with you on Jarhead actually had kind of been a yeah a, an almost I'd helped inform elements of this yeah. in a way, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah.
2: I mean, it, it, it's a very different movie in, in, yeah. in lots of ways, but in other ways, um, I mean, for a start, it meant because we were, we were working on a war movie, we, we had a chance to talk about our favorite war movies. So we already knew that 15 years ago that, you know, we'd sat down and watched together the battle of Algiers and come and see, and you know, no man's Land, and, you know, um, and then you add to that, the obvious ones, apocalypse now or, or, Grand Illusion and these things and so we didn't really watch any other movies on this one at all because we already knew each other's tastes in war movies.
1: Do you watch them together?
2: A couple of them we did, yeah. yeah. And sometimes, you know, with with, with movies, normally I I would screen movies for crews and say, look, this is the feeling I want and, you know, look at the color palette, or yeah. I don't know, whatever it is that you're going for, there'll be some element that you want to draw people's attention to when you're making this movie. But th- this one, we didn't do anything of that at all, because it just we kept thinking, who else we couldn't find anything that was like this film. And, and, and I'm not saying that in a sort of, uh, I'm not blowing my own trumpet, it was just a simple fact, there isn't a movie that works quite in this way. Because even the greatest examples, and there are some great ones are very subjective filmmaking, like yeah. for example Son of Saul, you know um is shot on very very long lenses you you really don't see you you see him the central character but you see barely anything except mm-hmm. the the hit, the merest hint of what lies beyond but because you know the horrors that that probably are there it's incredibly evocative and very powerful <clears throat> but it's very different to to this movie which is shot on a on a on a 40 millimeter lens which is you know a pretty conventional lens really it 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 sees a lot but not everything and it's certainly not into we're not in revenant birdman territory where you want on these 18 millimeter lenses where you, you, you see everything mm-hmm. you know and you're you're very very wide it's somewhere in its own place and, yeah. and there was no particular rule to the relationship between camera and actor it just it just sort of you know we just talked it through and, and it was it was basically operating on instinct so we didn't have anything we could else we could look at
1: it's good in a way
2: it's very good yeah. and it's what you want but yeah. uh, it's also slightly scary because you, you just you can't when you're in you know when you're up against it on set one has a tendency to think Ooh. you know, oh, you know how, did, how did Kubrick do it in such and such you know <laughs> yeah. or, or, or you know how did uh, you know uh, how did Lean do it or, yeah but there was no, no there was nothing
1: in a complete curveball um, one thing we didn't talk about last time I, was, I, to, I, was, I have to talk to you about it was musical theatre
2: yes musical theatre Cabaret. Yep.
1: What's your What's your attraction to that though? That world because I love how you have so many different hats. You know, in terms yeah. of you're feeding your creativity. I think through all these wonderful different outlets and you kind of. I
2: I have a I have a I have a um, how can I put this a constantly evolving relationship with the musical theatre. Sometimes I think. It can be incredible. And mm-hmm. sometimes I think it's literally the stupidest thing ever invented. <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm serious. And, and uh, you know, there are times when I, I find it, I find it impo- almost impossible to watch. because like, yeah. I, I just think, what, 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 what are you doing?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, you're singing, you've got a mic on, you know, you're singing in a voice no one ever uses. There's a big band there and it's sort of packaged emotion. And yeah. it can be the most sentimental, the most, you know, a, 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 and musically it often leaves something to be desired. But then when it works, mm-hmm. you know, the best of it, Sondheim, yeah. occasional, Rogers and Hammerstein, Candor and Ebb, you know, or Hamilton, for example, yeah. you think, well, this is the best form of theatre there is. I mean, it's, it, it, and it, it isn't musicals, it's music theatre, you know. Yeah. But in order to get to Hamilton, i was very struck, you know, Lin-Manuel is so kind of marinated in the history of musical theatre. Mm-hmm. You can see all that knowledge in the way that he's constructed that show that even though it is cutting edge in so many ways without all that knowledge of musical theater and all the techniques of musical theater and choreographers and and directors and writers and the history of musicals he he wouldn't be able to do that so i very much admired the fact that he wasn't he was using the genre to reinvent the genre rather than coming at it as a as a novice he's a proper he'd really done his homework
3: my name is Alexander Hamilton.
2: But I, I'm not, I, I don't think I'm that good at it. It sounds silly for somebody You've who's done a musician. Won awards. Music for it. Yes. <laughs> Meaningless, as you know. <laughs> <coughs> um, occasionally I found my way towards something that really, you know, uh, feels like it's quite personal. Yeah. And I think Cabaret was one of those things. But a lot of the time, you know, the show is being governed by automated machinery, which is not my favorite thing. Yeah.
3: Good is sitting alone in your room. Come here, the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Put down the knitting, the book, and the broom.
1: That particular one, I I remember watching my mum in that when I was a kid, actually, and and a kind of local production of it. What did she
3: play? She
1: was only on in the. She was only in the in the kind of chorus for that one. But then I the one I do remember kind of more vividly is a really smaller known musical called called Charlie Girl. Oh yeah, and then Sweet Charity. She was in as well, and she played Nancy and Oliver. And I've got this picture of her in my. Hall of, of her, all draped in Nancy. I was three, and my dad took me to see it, um, and in a local town hall. And I thought Bill Sykes had killed my mum. My dad was like, "It's just oh pretend. No, it's just pretend." Oh. And, um, and it's such a kind of
0: that's heartbreaking. Such an
1: amazing memory that I have. Yeah, one of yeah. Few of can that you remember? Kind of it? Yeah, absolutely. I can remember the kind of weird old seats and where we were sat, and wow. and my dad kind of putting his arm around and kind of almost pre-warning me, going, "This is just, it's just pretend." Yeah. Um, but I well, There's mean, a I'm, root.
2: There's a root of your your fascination, you know. Maybe it? yeah. Um, Watching my mum
1: die. What's your mum being killed
2: by Bill Sykes? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Never recovered.
1: But you're right about that thing. Like, there's some that get it really right, and there's others that it's yeah. so it's just yeah, like it's just saccharine. It's yeah. just.
2: It can it can be a painful thing it, to yeah.
1: watch. I want to leave if that's all right, just because purely selfishly it means that we can play some of Thomas's extraordinary American Beauty score, which Great. I think is one of the best scores ever written. Am I right in thinking that there's some stuff that didn't make it into the film that is around music, but a record shop?
2: Oh, American Beauty. I thought, a record shop in 1917? I'm not sure about that. Um, There is, yes, well-remembered. Yeah, there's a scene set in a record shop. He goes in and he buys... All the records that he should have bought when he was a teenager. <laughs> this is this is Lester, who's then, of course, in his forties. So I think I seem to remember him buying, you know, Dark Side of the Moon and you know bringing it all back home and Led Zeppelin too or something. <laughs> and um, and the and the record uh, uh, the record uh, uh, shop assistant, you know, looks at him. He's got sort of nasal piercings and straight hair, and he goes catching up. <laughs> and Lester goes yep like that and it was a really great little scene I just thought what a great little scene because it's exactly what he's doing he's like yeah you've got it I'm gonna relive my youth and I don't care I'm gonna start smoking dope I'm gonna listen to all those, track- those records that I should have listened to when I was young you know uh, and I think there was a line about you know he used to he said uh, I was too busy listening to Three Dog Night or something like that <laughs> to to listen to Dark Side of the Moon, and um, so yeah, it, it's um, I mean Alan Ball who who wrote it was it was he's great with music I think and yeah. and is a muso himself I mean a real a real musical lover and wrote a lot of musical references into the script some of which you know I didn't use but some of which I did
1: and the well, last thing I wanted to ask you because this is your first 1917 is your first. Screenplay that you've written. Yeah. And if it was a different experience for you making a film that you've written.
2: Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I feel like um, it's much more moving. I mean, when you sit down, it's a blank page, you know, and, and weeks, months later, suddenly there are all these people there to fulfill effectively your vision. It just feels different. It feels more personal. You feel more vulnerable at times. You feel more responsible for their state of mind, happiness, all that sort of stuff yeah it just it just felt different from the beginning this one also you know the the story itself is personal to me you know it's part of my family history so there is that as well i felt i was sort of somehow going back to my childhood when i was told these stories um and that makes you very much more connected emotionally to the whole experience plus there were the odd things of you know she the unusual circumstances of shooting uh you know one continuous shot and all this stuff and and being very close to home so it was different for all those reasons and and really um really rewarding because of it i think
1: yeah you've made a really very special film
2: thank you Edith. So
1: great to chat to you thank you so much sam thank, thank, you. thank you
2: pleasure real pleasure
1: From the score to 1917, that's Quasile Wood by Thomas Newman, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the fantastic Sam Mendes. My huge, huge thanks to Sam for taking the time to talk to us. 1917 is on general release now and is an absolutely stunning creative achievement. We'll put a Spotify playlist up for the show via edithbowman.com, which is also the place to subscribe and catch up with all 180-odd episodes of our wee podcast follow us on facebook instagram and twitter we are at soundtracking uk and please do check out our youtube channel as well which is where you'll also be able to watch next week's guest as well as listen to him as usual on the podcast next week we have the fabulous mr bruce springsteen joined by the director of his film released last year western stars tom zimney i very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then